0: For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Welcome back. After a short break, I'm so happy to be here with you for Series Nine of Wardrobe Crisis. If you're a new listener, welcome. I hope you enjoy going through our rich back catalogue of conversations with extraordinary people changing fashion around the world. This week's guest is one that I've been chasing for years. He's always rushing off somewhere, Cyril. He is a very hard man to pin down, but I finally managed it in London over the summer. He is Cyril Gooch, the German-born, New York-based former product designer and branding expert behind Parley for the Oceans. He started this environmental organisation in 2012. And his big idea was that the oceans would be his new and only client. (laughs) Love it. Parley is now a global environmental organisation. And their stated mission is to bring together creators, thinkers and leaders to raise awareness for the beauty and the fragility of our oceans and to collaborate on projects to end their destruction. Now, over the years, these have included things like working with Adidas to phase out single use plastics, working with big name visual artists on everything from underwater sculptures to sustainable surfboards, and funding research into new materials, as well as a whole load of educational programmes. Parle's work is just as likely to play out as a beach cleanup or figuring out the logistics of recycling as it is to be a new product. It's all in the mix, to beat what Cyril refers to as our addiction to virgin plastic. Some of what he talks about unflinchingly here is scary. Air pollution from wildfires, for example, talks about how apocalyptic that feels and how there's no escaping it when it hits an area near you. Or the prospect of the oceans choked with pollution, human-made pollution. But now he's got your attention. He wants you to come with him and be the change. I've watched Cyril give so many talks over the years and he always leaves the audience buzzing with ambition to get on with it, get moving. Asking, what can we do to protect our oceans today in our own spheres? Plastic, he says, is a design failure. And Cyril reckons we need nothing short of a complete materials revolution. Talking of which, I'm going to plug my new book. (laughs) At the end of the month... My new book, Where Next? Fashioning the Future, comes out in Australia. You'll have to wait till February for the UK edition. But Aussies, I would love you to look out for events that we're doing all around the country. And thinking about new materials, there's a lot of that in this book. Okay, ready? Let's hang out backstage with the fabulous, inspiring Cyril Gooch. Welcome to the podcast, Cyril Gooch.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Claire.
0: I've just told you I'm very happy because I've been trying to get you on here for years. Thank you, Claire. I'm humbled.
1: I mean, if I would know, you know, we could have have that that conversation like in
0: 2018. (laughs) I have always wanted to talk to you about your work and your vision for how we can use creativity to solve our plastic oceans crisis. There's a lot to unpack here, but I want to start with a provocation. (laughs) It's yours, not mine. To be very honest, I don't believe we're going to clean up the oceans. That's a quote from an interview you did, I think it was with Dezine about a couple of years ago. People don't wanna hear this. They wanna hear that anything is possible.
1: Yeah, people wanna hear that there is a magic fix for everything, right? Um, One of the first workshops I had at NASA JPL because I thought these people know how life depends on innovation and how timely things have to be solved. Um, If they can put people on Mars or on moon or in, in in the orbit, they might be able to help us fixing problems down here. And they said, you know what? Most of the people that come to us, governments or or corporations, they don't want to change anything. They just want to find a solution for dealing with the negative impact they have. And the issue with the big problems that we are facing today is that this is not an easy task. It's a complex issue, and you need to totally reconstruct the way we're doing business. Economy is really the driver of all these environmental issues we are facing.
0: You're calling for a redesign and a replacement of materials that are harmful to the ocean. We just attended a talk that you did at Future Fabrics Expo, and there was a slide there where you had three intersecting pillars. One was education. One was defending the ocean. The third one I want to talk about, which is materials.
1: Exactly. Um, there's only so much that we can do through education. You know, um, there's a lot, of course. We can tell people. Uh, that all the steps they're doing, all the decisions they make in private or professional context have an impact. That's one thing. We can go out there and defend life by intercepting bad actors like poachers, by intercepting plastic pollution, by intercepting chemicals. And we have to do all that, that's for sure. But as a limit to what we can achieve because we are pouring as a society, as a, as a species, so many pollutants into this
0: ecosystem that we can't really catch up. You said before we're addicted to this pollutant that is plastic. We actually almost don't want to stop using it because it's so convenient, it's everywhere. We're running on toxic chemicals and we
1: humans have been quite proud of that, arrogant nearly, and saying, oh, we can improve nature. The truth is, most of the inventions we have been putting onto this planet for the last five decades turned out to be extremely harmful. And plastic is a poster boy, a poster girl for that. Plastic stands for all these chemicals, all these materials, all these business practices, which we celebrated ourselves for. And suddenly we see they are toxic. You know, they're harming human life. They're harming the natural world.
0: You talk about it as a design flaw.
1: It is a design flaw, really is because true innovation, the best and the highest level of innovation and technology is is coming from nature. And it was here millions of years before we even arrived. I think that we need to understand now that nature is ahead of us. And it's this moment where we have to learn that if we don't collaborate with nature on eye level, if we're not embracing non-human life, then we will not have an opportunity to exist anymore in the future.
0: We're recording this, Cyril, at the Future Fabrics Expo in London that you or Parley sponsors the innovation element of it. And I've been coming here for years. It's a fantastic thing where you get to see all these new inventions. But you gave the opening keynote today. And in it, you said, we talked about an apocalypse. You said, we humans are successfully breaking the planet. So it's not about us saving nature. It's about survival.
1: Exactly. It's about the future of the human species, really. And right now we are at this point where we're not talking about the future anymore. Um, We're talking about today. um, Coming from New York and we just witnessed a Blade Runner moment of toxic air pollution, which delivered pretty much a a key visual for climate change, right? I mean, orange skies. Orange skies. So far
0: away from these fires. These fires are in Canada.
1: And honestly, when you went to the street... And, and breathe it in, you, you felt instantly um, unhealthy. Uh, you, your, your skin reacted. Um, you developed instantly a, a cough. You, fatigue took you. It, you. You instantly knew that this is not an environment you can stay in. But there's no escape, you know. There's no gated community. There's no dormant. There's no uh, air conditioner or air filtration system that can protect you from that. Polluting air and polluting water is something that is quite difficult to defend yourself against. And I think that's very humbling. And that's also very important to learn that you can have as much money as you want. The moment nature is broken, we humans can't exist anymore on this planet. These creatures, these animals, um, these organisms out there in the natural world allow us to exist. It could be...
0: Well, what I was thinking was, well, that's horrific, and of course we don't want it. There's some power in those who've been traditionally used to shielding themselves from the worst of anything through their cash, realising that it's the great leveller, you can't escape it. You can't buy your way out of climate change. I mean, I know they talk about like, ooh, all the billionaires want to move to New Zealand where they think the apocalypse will be less scary. But if the air is polluted, everybody suffers.
1: That's it. You can make poverty unseen, you can move to other areas in a country where you're not exposed to suffering of people or practices that you don't want to witness. But we're now talking about entering the engine room of this planetary system that we call Earth. The moment we are screwing that up, there's really no escape unless you want to leave the planet or you want to stay here and and run around with gas masks or more or less have hyper filtration everywhere. It will not be anymore the life that we know and that we appreciate on this planet. And I think there is something that nobody ever connected or at least not people in power, people who have the decision and the influence to make decisions or to steer decisions. And that is that you at some point, are exposed to the same basic elements as all other life on the planet. Mm.
0: It's easy to get scared, isn't it? It's also easy to cast blame. But you said before that the word we need right now is empathy.
1: Yeah, Palais was never pointing fingers, really. Um, It's hard sometimes, you know, because it makes you angry to be confronted with arrogance and ignorance. But I don't believe that the solution is in shaming people. Mm. At least not our approach. Ours is really more about understanding empathy, really understanding why people don't change and to understand how we can make people change, how we can allow new decisions to be made. And that brings us to education. That brings us to proximity to life, non-human life, Mm -hmm. exposing people to, to animals. And it brings us to A material revolution, new materials, new technologies, new business practices. The issues that we are facing today, they are all rooted back into the fear of mankind and the fear of like not surviving, the fear of nature being stronger.
0: You said before something that I think perhaps listeners can really understand this because we're surrounded by it all the time. You said we've done a really good job of painting a picture of the coming apocalypse. We already know what it could be like if our worst fears and nightmares came true. We don't need to tell people what could happen if we don't act right. We need to tell a different story, a better story. We played through all the
1: possible futures by making all these films, by portraying ideas of a dystopian tomorrow strongly visualized everything had a look and everything has a look right so when you look at the photos taken uh, around june 7 2023 in new york you think of blade runner you know you're like right away tap into something that was learned oh my god yellow sky means end of the world it means that we're going down mm. And I think that was one of the biggest issues so far, that climate change didn't have that smoking gun, didn't have that image, didn't have that poster child. That's why at Palais, we focused a lot on plastic pollution, because everybody understands if a beautiful beach is polluted with dirty, ugly plastic trash. Mm. I think now we have been delivered a key visual for the even bigger problem of air pollution, and that is climate change.
0: Okay, let's talk about Palais and its connection with the oceans that's how you began, that's where you're focused. I wanted to talk about connection. We said empathy, but I was thinking about how not everybody lives near the ocean or has even seen it. I think that's still possible. You know, if you live in the city and you just don't get, you're not privileged and you don't travel and you've never been to the coast, that's that happens. I live in Australia where we're all very connected to the beach and the shoreline and, I don't know, surfing and the outdoors. But not everybody has that privilege. I think there's a quote from you where you said, the ocean can feel far away like it's a big place and not everyone understands how their lives are connected to it. You talked before about how it gives us, I don't know what the numbers are, but many of the breaths we take provides oxygen. People don't necessarily know. Where did you start to try to get people to just at least see how wonderful it is out there? You're right. People don't understand how
1: important the sea, how important water is for life on this planet. Because humans are dust walkers. so oh, oh Dust walkers. <laughs> we are running around in dust, right? We, we can't really live underwater. We can't breathe underwater. We are land bound. Mm. The truth, though, is that we are not living on planet Earth. We are living on planet ocean. We are an ocean planet, an ocean world. One of these worlds that NASA is so desperately to looking for out there in the universe and water is connected to life so all life on planet earth is connected to the sea to the oceans because the oceans are responsible for all water on this planet mm. and that's an important one and therefore if you're looking at life anywhere on the planet how plants or non-human life but also human life is connected with water sun but also with the sea
0: I was just saying not everybody grows up with or has access, ready access to the ocean. You didn't. You grew up in the Black Forest in Germany.
1: Exactly. And you know what? It was very special for me to to see the ocean the first time as a child. Do you I, remember it? Oh, man, yes. I was sitting at the beach forever. I was like overwhelmed um, by this like force and the noise. And to be honest, it was the only place that I was not troubled, that I was not, my brain was stopping to spin because I, my whole youth was like, dominated by by thoughts and, and ideas and worries. And the oceans were this like calm place for me where I really felt safe.
0: Cyril, were you, are you an overthinker?
1: Oh yes, not of course. As
0: uh, a kid though, were you always worrying about, you just said why, what were you worried about?
1: I mean, I observe a lot and I process a lot and I try to find solutions for problems that has to do with my my childhood and my my parents and all. But I also like complex riddles. And design for me is actually a way to simplify very complex tasks and make it very easy for people to make decisions, better decisions than they would do otherwise. So design for me is just a communication tool.
0: I want to talk more about design, but before I let you off from escaping the magic of the ocean, I think this is something very visceral that people might listen to this and go, me too. It's not me, actually, it's my husband, but my husband's a surfer. And there is something about being out there in this vastness. He always talks about how the ocean bit his arrogance out of him when he was a kid. But there's something about the vast power of something that is much bigger than you, but also that you can find your place in relation to. You said that when you were sitting there on the coast for the first time, you felt more peaceful, less distracted. Talk about that. There
1: is an order of things and the oceans make that very clear to you. And they teach you respect. Otherwise, you're going to die in these waves. You're going to die underwater. You're going to die in these storms. And I think that is something that we are not used to anymore, that we have respect for natural forces.
0: The order of things is interesting, isn't it? Humans tend to think we're in control of everything.
1: We are so egomaniac that we believe that we can control everything exactly. And that is a total wrong exu- assumption. We can't control shit.
0: <laughs> Tell us a story about meeting Paul Watson, Captain Paul Watson of, of Sea Shepherd in 2012. And how he put a rocket up your ass, we'd say, Australia. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Were you in a law office? First, I was actually in Switzerland at Basel. But I came to see my grandmother, her birthday is on the 16th of June. And so I was, um, short before that, I was at Art Basel, Baylor Foundation. Um, Jeff Koons uh, had an exhibition there. And Pamela Anderson was there as a guest. And she was wearing this black T-shirt with the Sea Shepherd logo on it, like the, the Skull and Bones, uh, the Jolly Roger uh, logo of the pirates. And I was like, hey, Pam, what's your association to Sea Shepherd? And... I knew this group from a TV show uh, on Animal Planet called Whale Wars. And so I asked her, why are you flying the pirate flag for them? And she goes like, oh, I just came to Europe to bring bail money for Captain Walsh, and he who arrested in Germany. And another friend of mine who was um, with us there, he said, oh, Cyril actually is German. He comes from Germany. So he still knows people there. He could probably help. And, and she then made an intro to the to the lawyer so next day I was sitting in front of Captain Watson in the law firm in Frankfurt actually the city I was born originally and we spoke about the sea we spoke about him
0: did you know about his story
1: before I knew some of it but in that night I properly prepared for that meeting and seeing him in person made it clear to me that he is not the aggressive and Mm, violent man he's a lovely guy he's a defender isn't he he's a defender and he actually is also a very good media person he studied media and communication so he knows what to do to make people look
0: for those who are listening who might not be aware of what sea shepherd is and who paul watson is just give us one sentence
1: he was the co-founder paul watson was of greenpeace and then the founder of sea shepherd And now he left his own organization and uh, runs his own Captain Paul Watson Foundation. He's an environmentalist by heart and he would die for a whale. And his opinion is that the camera is the true weapon against the destruction of our oceans.
0: That's so powerful, isn't it? And
1: it's so true. But on the other hand, awareness only brings you that far. Mm,
0: Okay, so you then were exposed to this story and this very charismatic fighter for Defender of the Oceans What did you do? You decided to make the C your client.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I was running a design firm with my partner, Leah, and we were on one side strategy, consultants really for governments or brands. We would do turnarounds of companies that wouldn't work so well anymore. And we created identities and products and honestly, full business concepts. We invented business, (laughs) but really creative, you know, like not driven by the entrepreneurial spirit of I have to hoard the cash more by, oh my God, I can make an idea a reality.
0: Well, actually there's a few things there. One is you were talking about design thinking as problem solving, but the other is, is the power of branding. That's why Parley is so effective because you're harnessing the power of telling a really clear and persuasive story and making everyone connect that with the brand. And if you, I just get people thinking about this, if your client is the ocean, what power?
1: Exactly. Nobody's as big as the oceans. So we are pretty much like just an ambassador of this huge ecosystem where 95 plus percent of all biomass on planet Earth lives. So the oceans are really our mandate, our client, our mission. And It makes it very, very clear what you have to do then.
0: Okay, what was the brief from the ocean?
1: (laughs) Connect us with these humans and make them understand the beauty, but also the fragility and make them understand they're not better than us. They need us. We don't really need them. And there is a lot to lose and to miss what they're not aware of. So it was a mission. So the message was not create fear. It was more... One of love.
0: It's funny because I said, was the message about plastic? No, the message was bigger than that. But you started with plastic as the first campaign, shall we say.
1: Yes, we started with plastic because we realized that this is the most camera ready cause. And it's one where nobody can look away because it's not as controversial and not as uh, brutal and violent as chopping up a whale Mm. or cutting fins of a shark, plastic is in all its drama, in all its destruction, it's always beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it comes out of the belly of a bird or a mammal uh, or uh, a fish, it's in these shapes that we know so well that speaks the standard language of all product on earth. And exactly that standardization in, in language of like the shapes of the bottles, the shape of the of the containers that we consume every day for toothpaste, shampoo, milk, soda, and whatever Mm -hmm. product we are using is, is a global universal language. So a guy in India would connect the shape of a plastic bottle to his everyday habits the same way somebody is doing it in London, New York, or in Singapore. And on the other hand, plastic comes in all these beautiful colors, and we are so familiar with it. It could Every piece that we're collecting of a beach could come right away from my shopping cart when I'm going to a supermarket. Mm. And I felt that this association, this direct link to everybody's everyday life mm. is something that allows us humans to actually look and accept that we're responsible for it. You don't have that with killing animals. You know, you're, yeah. you're not part of that killing. We don't see it. We don't associate ourselves with It's easier with to
0: look away. But also there's this... I loved what you said there about the shapes and the colors and the visual impact and relatability of it, because it's also design. It's that familiarity, but it also could be, I'm going to say attractive, although it's not attractive to think about ocean plastic, but you're able to create these images that draw the eye.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's these images that you grew up as a child, you know, where you see something and you find the imperfect, you find the flaw and you you more or less mark it and if you have the right number, you solve the riddle. (laughs) And that is the same with a beautiful beach at the end of the world that looks like paradise. You zoom in and there's this belt of plastic surrounding it and you realise this is alien matter. It doesn't belong there. It
0: needs to be uh, removed. Various stats suggest various future scenarios, but something I read from Greenpeace the other day said that plastic pollution could triple by 2060.
1: Yeah, it's, it's correct. I mean, we're making more and more of that plastic. And also the population on this planet, the human population is increasing rapidly. And plastic is one way to democratize products. I mean, food, the whole food industry, medical industry, unthinkable without plastic at this point. We're truly addicted to fossil fuel-based plastic.
0: You warn us, I don't know if that's the right language, but that ocean plastic isn't an economical alternative to virgin plastic. I say that because we're thinking about Parley as being connected with amazing recycled ocean-burned plastic solutions. But you're telling us now that's not going to be enough.
1: Yeah, plastic is plastic, you know, and it's not better plastic because you're picking up from a beach, but of course, it's better to use recycled material instead of making more plastic. And for the next five to ten years, probably even 15 years, we depend on plastic, fossil fuel-based plastic, because we don't have alternatives. Or at least we don't have enough alternatives. Mm. But the ultimate goal should be to create new materials that can replace plastic for good. At the beginning, when we walked the beaches or dove the reefs and we found plastic trash everywhere, we tried to find a way to remove it, to intercept it, to get it out of nature and... It's a very expensive endeavor <laughs> to remove plastic waste at the end of the world, remote coastlines, remote islands even. And what do you do with it then? You can't burn it. Um, you can't dump it again. So recycling is the only answer, really.
0: Why is it so complicated? Why is it so hard? Apart from geographical logistics, it's about it breaking up. It what?
1: If you leave plastic on a beach or in the water, it keeps breaking up more and more and becomes bioavailable, that means animals eat it. And actually, it also goes into the air. The smaller it gets, the more creatures are exposed to it.
0: And of course, it travels up the food chain. So we eat the fish, and the fish have eaten the plastic, we're eating the plastic. Actually, there is a stat, a horrible stat, that we're ingesting the equivalent of one credit card's worth of plastic every week.
1: Exactly. Imagine.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. But so it's tricky to rescue this plastic and turn it into new material. But that's what you started to do.
1: Yes, that's the instant fix. Um, you see something that doesn't belong in nature, you grab it and you don't burn it because then it just turns into air pollution. You recycle it. And with that, you prevent that more plastic has been made and you're also cut into an industry of making virgin plastic.
0: In the beginning, you worked with a lot of different amazing brands and you continue to do that. The most famous collaboration, of course, is with Adidas. So tell us about that process of going to brands and saying, we want you to change your supply chain to use some of this material and we can make it happen, presumably. How do you do it?
1: <laughs> so, yeah, that was, a, that was a process. The relationship with Adidas unfolded quite naturally. Right after I returned from Europe to New York, um, after I saw Captain Paul Watson, I met the, back then the CEO of Adidas. Who was it? Um, Eric Stamminger. Oh, yeah. So we were sitting down and he spoke about Palestine and his wife was very active creating relationships between Palestinians and Israelis through soccer, a playful way of bringing opponents together. So I spoke with him about Palais, the vision of Palais, of creating peace between us humans and non-human life in the sea and there was something there where I felt, my God, this could be an ag- agonization, this could be a man that, that understands. And it triggered a thought where I felt if we partner with such a big brand, when the villain and the environmentalist come together, we can change <laughs> things at a rapid speed and we can actually show that it's more lucrative to protect the oceans than to destroy them. And the vision was to f- turn Adidas from a polluter into a champion of eco-innovation. But it took two years and Eric Liedtke became the, the boss of the brand. As he's a surfer and he right away understood the power of Palais.
0: More recently, I've been working with Dior. Just talk us through that collaboration and then I want to ask you about what the future of this is if we're not going to simply recycle.
1: What we learned since we started Palais is that you can have the best ideas, you can have the best alternatives, Mm -hmm. the best materials. If you're not mastering it to a certain level of perfection, uh, creating materials that are truly reliable and have some very exclusive properties, then you will fail. And now it's our mission really to phase in more and more new technologies, more materials, alternatives to plastic, alternatives to leather, and probably at some point even alternatives to fur. And that means we need to work with luxury. We need to work with the best in class to master alternative materials. And Dior felt like the perfect match for that.
0: You're a rebellious thinker, Cyril. I know you are. What would you say to the charge that we don't solve these problems by working with the original hierarchies that delivered the problems to us? What if it's about making less, not just making differently? What if it's about saying these massive companies are the problem? Like, What's your response to that?
1: My response is that every movement needs biodiversity, so it's not about mm. isolating uh, players, it's about working with them all.
0: It's also the power of the money, right? You're not going to, we're not going to smash it all down tomorrow, so we may as well get those who are innovative leaders to do better. I think we have to hope that Teslas
1: exist in different uh, industry categories, right? We have to hope that some brands going kind to of break into the luxury segment, into the sports segment, into the a building and construction segment. And we definitely have to build on that. So we're going to work with every player that has the potential to be the Tesla of a specific industry category. Mm. But we can't take the risk alone. We have to also work with the companies that today are defining these industry categories.
0: Just really briefly, because I'd like to understand, how on earth does it work? So how does Parley connect with the brands and then what's in the middle? Like who are the recyclers that you're working with? Who are the collectors? How is it, it structured? So
1: first of all, it's, it's bigger than material. Our partnerships are really collaborations and long-term membership programs. That means these companies or governments yeah. or other uh, intergovernmental organizations, they commit with us to a moonshot.
0: You are talking before about the Maldives and how 60% of the people there just got involved in this cleanup or an education program you did. Changing a country like the
1: Maldives is for me the same as changing a big organization. You know, you got some leaders, you got middle management and you have lots of users. So working with the Maldives was extremely rewarding. We signed a contract in 2019 with them. And now last week we had a countrywide collaboration moment with them an event where 60% of the society participated. That's correct. Over 200 schools. We had 60,000 volunteers on the uh, on the beaches cleaning up. And we had a 12-hour live TV component where we educated the whole country around pollution, but also around overfishing and illegal fishing.
0: Because all these things are connected. I mean,
1: absolutely, healthy
0: oceans are not yeah. just those with less plastic. Exactly. So I want to just stick on this materials thing. So... You said before, recycled is obviously better than non-recycled. I mean, this is a no-brainer. We need to be using what's already in existence. But I wanted to ask you about the problems that come with recycling. This has been freaking me out, Cyril. Just even the other day, new research came out of the University of Cambridge that warned of the unintended negative impacts because hazardous chemicals, endocrine disruptors, carcinogens can be released during the recycling process, particularly relevant around food packaging this. But I feel like there's more and more studies coming out warning us that we didn't know everything about how our recycled materials might behave and what these unintended consequences might be. And we still don't know.
1: I think these are two different discussions. Um, First of all, plastic is a design failure. Plastic is a bad material. Plastic is toxic. Out of question. We should not use plastic. But we do. (laughs) And we're addicted to it. And we're using more plastic than ever. Recycling, on the other hand, recycling on its own, is a great thing. Nature does it. Recycling plastic, of course, it doesn't change the properties of plastic. It doesn't make plastic better. So, yes, we should not touch plastic. We should not use plastic and we should phase it out, for sure. But we should also not make more plastic. Yeah. So, at this point in time with our addiction in mind that we have for plastic, we need to recycle. Mm -hmm. We should not use anything else than recycled plastic. We should not use virgin plastic. And the process of recycling, yes, of course, there is a danger that you are exposing yourself, the workers or environments with, I would say, broken down or dissolved matter. And that's very simple. Recycling on a mechanical level works the way that you're chopping down these plastic containers and you're melting it. And then you're creating new pellets with that. And these new pellets, these little chips are then being used to make new products. And in this phase of sorting, washing and breaking down old plastic, if you don't have the right equipment, you have the situation that it's contaminating the workplace and it's contaminating the environment. But this can be quite easily prevented if you're using the right equipment and the right gear, the right protection gear. And that's not the problem. Recycling is not the problem. I believe that the plastic industry is actually behind all these studies and all these myths. And I think they're laughing right now their ass off that all these environmentalists are now going against recycling. Oh, no.
0: What you think? They just want us to use yeah, more nobody wants plastic. To, The plastic
1: industry doesn't want to recycle. They want to sell original plastic. They want to make more. So I believe this is a big, big, big campaign and they have billions of dollars, as we know, to lobby for plastic and we should not fall into that trap. And now demonizing recycling in a moment where it's finally successful, (laughs) because to be frank, recycling wasn't successful until we started. We made recycling sexy (laughs) and before Palais, recycling was considered ugly by the industry. I heard people in fashion industry saying, I will never put this stinky waste into my product. So we really made it hot. Recycling is fantastic. Plastic is the problem. Mm. And to be honest, we will hopefully recycle in the future everything that we use. We should recycle everything we ever made. We should recycle concrete. We should recycle all the computers. We should recycle even paint. Why are we always making new stuff? Because that's how today business is working. There's no money in recycling.
0: All right, I want to talk about your solutions, which I think are very persuasive, which are, in summary, yes, we need to recycle what we've already made. Yes, there are solutions to turn our plastic trash into new plastic material that's recycled. Fine. We're on the brink of this materials revolution. There's so much innovation and there are so many new inventors of great new possibilities. So you're throwing the weight of Pali behind some startups. One of them, Bananatex, is about natural fibers. But talk to us about your vision for a new material future.
1: Yeah, I think today we are addicted to materials that are quite harmful and we have to replace them with natural solutions, natural materials or materials that are being grown through biology, by organisms in a natural way. And I'm making a distinction here between natural material that grows like that today already and biofabrication, or also called synthetic biology, where smart people and scientists isolate organisms that are responsible in nature for a specific task. For example, adding a color to something or gluing stuff together or creating Uh, meat or creating a fiber, um, that is more or less learning, going into the engine room from nature and learning from these organisms how they are making it in, in plants or in animals. And between these two poles is, in my opinion, the solution. We can find a lot of materials out there today already that can do the job But some materials don't have the properties, so we have to create them. And by collaborating with nature on eye level, we can do that in a non-harmful and a non-toxic way. Programming cells and growing stuff, biology really being the answer. Mm. On the other hand, this is not a light switch revolution. We can't say today plastic is off, new materials are on. No way. Everybody who says that is a liar. It's a transition, and this transition will take decades. It's not something like AI that pops up one day and suddenly three months later it's already that intelligent that you can do tasks with it overnight that you couldn't do uh, the day before. Material is a very, very different matter. You've got to first create it and invent it. Then you need to test it then you need to build supply chains, then you need to promote it and make it a new standard, and all that in the physical world. That means Mm -hmm. you have to move machines around, you have to install machines, you have to convince people. It's a slow process. And yes, I have no doubt, we are revolutionizing the material world of this planet, the human made part of it, but it will take 15 to 20 years to be completely fulfilled.
0: We don't have a lot of time to dig into all these new materials, but that's okay. There's other podcast episodes that do that. But I would like you to just touch on two that you're supporting through Parley. One of them's got nothing to do with fashion. It's concrete.
1: Yeah, Biomason. It's a company in North Carolina. They identified enzymes that can glue together aggregate in a way you would normally make a Portland cement. right? These enzymes would grow corals in their usual life. And in this case, they're creating connections between sand or gravel or things like that. And you can technically grow a building. So that's fascinating. And it has to do with fashion a little. You can't wear it, but fashion needs places and spaces. Facades and objects. So yeah, you can make and build architecture with a grown material without carbon footprint.
0: All right, the last one. Because we just, uh, we could do a whole episode on this, but I just want to touch on it because it's so interesting. Is capturing carbon and turning it into stuff?
1: You know, I'm a cleanup guy. That means I run around the world and actually 500,000 other people run around the world with me and we are capturing pollutants and then we're turning pollutants into something. Plastic being one of these pollutants. So looking at carbon dioxide, methane gas greenhouse gases in general, in in my mind, it's way easier to catch those guys in the atmosphere than sifting through sand on a beach and finding these little microparticles. So of course, yes, we can capture CO2, methane gas and other greenhouse gases and use them as a feedstock for new materials. One way is to really recycle them. And take that stuff and turn it into vodka, fragrances, or even fuel. (laughs) Yeah, Air Company, one of our first investments, they're doing that, right? They're technically recycling carbon dioxide. The advantage is carbon dioxide is not a bad substance. It's great. All life on this planet is built on carbon. It's just in the wrong place. It doesn't belong up there in the air. And the other side is you can use carbon dioxide as a feedstock for other organisms to, to nipple on and to, to eat and to transform that into new materials. This could be cellulose. This can be any kind of other application, really. It's so yes. world,
0: a whole new world.
1: Yeah, exactly. And suddenly we are not drilling for oil. We are just more or less capturing it in the, in, in the, in the skies. We just need massive butterfly nets. Okay, that's a joke. <laughs>
0: Well, this has been a delight. We're out of time. I wish that we could do it again. Let's do it again. Yes.
1: Let's do for sure. <laughs> and not just in five years. We can do it sooner.
0: Thank you very much for sharing your insights. For, for the
1: oceans. <laughs> For the oceans, climate and life. Thank you. Bye, Claire. And thank you for that.
0: Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs Press.